Good morning. Uh, This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. All right. Thank you for that encouraging word this morning. <laughs> Peace be upon you. Everybody, how are you doing? I love it. I'm great. I love it that we're having a soccer team because I know and you know we're not good at sports around here. I remember I'm reminiscing years ago when we had a baseball team join like a nonprofit thing and all the smokers joined. And they couldn't run around the bases without getting winded. It was sad, but funny. And we lost. We lost last year. We'll lose this year. Do it. Represent. Okay. Um, No, I believe in you. Um, Okay. This is our passage today. We only have like three verses, right? Two verses? One, 13, 14, three verses. Um, I'm a a Bible person, not a math person. And... uh, um, my name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew for a few, few weeks now, and uh, we are um, we're going into the seven woes of uh, that, that Christ has for the Pharisees. These are intended to mirror the um, the, the blessed are yous in the uh, in the in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is is sort of like um, a pyramid, like. The way it looks going up one side is the same way it looks going down the other side. It's, it's really fascinating. The very center of the, of the book is when Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, and everything sort of works backwards. And Matthew has, has fashioned this entire book in an incredible way. So um, we're going into the seven woes. Um, Jesus is not happy with what he sees in the temple, and, uh, and we're going to jump into some of this stuff. Um, so why don't we pray, and then we're going to start with that very first word, woe, shall we? Let's pray. Father... Thank you for this place and these people. I, uh, I, I ask that you would be obviously present with us this morning, that we would um, be present here with you as well and with each other, that we would understand that we are uh, your kingdom. We are your people. We are your citizens. Um, we bear your name when we come together like this. We are your body. We are your presence in this world, um, a new humanity to fashion to forgive as you did and, and to welcome as you did and to serve as you did and to pour ourselves out as you did. And I ask that uh, this morning when all of that would happen in this room, that we would um, look each other in the eye and, and, uh, and see um, the face of Christ, that we would speak the words of Jesus, that we would be the loving hands and presence of Christ in the lives of each other. Um, some people here are bearing heavy burdens. Let us bear them with them. Some are, are celebrating. Let us celebrate with them. Um, in all of this, uh, may, may Jesus be the center of it and uh, humble us and um, get our focus off of ourselves. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Okay. So we're going to start off with this word, woe. Um, it's, so the Greek word, I'll just, I'll just throw this, I'll start here first. The Greek word for woe is oai. Everyone say oai. Why, you ask? It's a great question. Um, there's, uh, this word is very, very hard to translate um, because it like, has a depth of meaning that we don't have a singular word for. We have like, phrases and ideas for. Um, it's basically wrath mixed with sorrow. Um, the best way to describe it is to say um, if you had, when you were growing up, like a spiritual leader or a, um, a teacher or even a parent or someone that you respected who was an, a leader and elder over you in some way, 
um, and you looked up to them, and you wanted to be like them, you wanted to be them, you wanted to, you emulated them, you, you copied their, um, their rituals, um, because you saw them as like what you wanted your life to sort of end up like. Um, and then one day you get a piece of information that they did something that is really hard for you to wrap your mind around, that they have um, betrayed your trust in some way. I'm having microphone things. Ignore that. Um, they've betrayed your trust in some way. They've stolen something. Um, they've lied about something. They've committed adultery in some way. Like there's just something that they have done that has betrayed everything that they were to you. That's this feeling. Because what comes with that is sort of this righteous anger. Like you want them to sort of, they need to pay for what they've done. But in the same breath, there is this sorrow and pain because you love them and you don't want them to go through what they're going to go through. You don't want them to feel any punishment, to be cast out in any way. Uh, You want things to go back to the way that they were and you want to find some way to fix things. And so... That's, that's whoa. That's the idea behind all of this. Um, and it's perfectly fitting um, because Jesus, okay, one of the, the, the central teaching of Christianity is a Trinitarian view of God, that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Um, so when we think of Jesus as a human being, I know some of you grew up with this idea that, no, Jesus never cried uh, because he was... He was, uh, he was divine and this and that. Like when he was a baby, you know, he was just perfect, never sinned, never, all of that. Um, um, that's a little bit of a, of a heresy um, because uh, it's saying that Jesus was not fully human, but he, he absolutely was. And so Jesus would have grown up being raised and taught biblical things by these Pharisees that he is now talking to. Um, he would have spent time in the synagogue hearing them preach. He would have spent time... Um, constantly in their presence, wanting to be like them. In the last passage, he even gives them the respect that he thinks that they are due. He says, they are teaching you the things of God. He says, their teachings are actually the words of God, but their lives are not, are not the life that God would have them live. So they're hypocrites. Um, so there's a bit of this, this woe thing. Is that's, that's Jesus speaking now to the Pharisees whom he looks up to, and have, have, now that he sees, they have totally destroyed um, sort of their own image in his eyes, okay? So when he speaks to them, this is how he's speaking to them. So if this is you, if, if you have experienced this with somebody in your life, and a lot of us have, we've been betrayed by somebody who was over us. Um, this is that feeling. And he says, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now the word hypocrites is this Greek word, hypocrites. Uh, it basically means a stage actor. You're a stage actor. That's all you are. It's somebody in that day uh, would put on the costume, they would wear a mask, they would hold it in front of their face, and they would say their lines, and they'd go off the stage, put on another outfit, another mask, and come back out as somebody else. And you never really knew who it was that was doing the acting or the speaking. What Jesus is basically saying is, um, none of this is real. The way you are acting, they make their tassels long and their phylacteries wide, like, like last week we talked about. Like, it's all a show. They're trying to impress you. None of this is real. Do not be impressed. And here's the thing. Um, when we think of hypocrisy, like the worst thing, like surveys have been done where people say, what's the worst thing someone could call a Christian? And they're like, a hypocrite. Of course. Of course. Um, that, is, that is the worst thing that a Christian really could be called. Um, however, Jesus is not talking about like the everyday 
sort of thing where, like, you, you believe something, but then you, you do something different. Like, like, for instance, like, I'm not eating sugar right now, but there's, like, donuts right there. If I were to have one of those, I'm a hypocrite for saying you shouldn't eat sugar while just stuffing my face full of donuts. Krispy Kreme, of course. I mean, how can you not? Um, and my wife's not here this morning, so I, who knows? I could. I could have donuts. Um, she would never know unless she listens to the podcast. This will be a test. Um, <laughs> this is great. Um, I've got these ideas. Now, um, so that's not what Jesus is talking about, like saying something and then like one time doing the opposite thing. Like we all struggle with this. We're all in some ways like we say something, we do the other thing. We say this is wrong and then like we will do it. Um, that's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about is this tone. It's like a, a growing callousness um, to our own decisions, like a, a callousness um, where we begin to have our hearts hardened toward these things, a growing commitment to managing our image, a, uh, a culture and an atmosphere and a group of people that increasingly encourages looking the part um, or a projection of what people want what you want people to see you as, like we talked about last week. And it's a growing culture of that. And Jesus is confronting this because it has grown amongst the Pharisees for generations. And now it is full in the flesh, like they are doing everything in their lives for other people to see and to be impressed by. And there's this callousness there, like they don't even realize that they're doing it anymore. And the problem with hypocrisy seems to be in the mind of of Christ here, uh, much more... Much more than deeds not matching words. Jesus seems to be really concerned about chronic hypocrisy that leads to a self-deception. After a while, this deception, it becomes sort of an ingrained habit and the hypocrisy in your life is no longer recognizable. You can no longer be honest. It's the opposite of living honestly. When we talk about people living with integrity, that word integrity comes from the word integer, which means one number, one thing. Somebody who lives with integrity is one thing all the time. That is what they are. This is very important for your soul. Your soul needs this. Your soul needs your life to be one thing and one thing only. Um, This growing hypocrisy in the life of the Pharisees is incredibly dangerous, and Jesus says, woe to you for this. Um... I think a few years ago, I talked about this. There's this, uh, this uh, Reverend John Orberg. He, uh, he's a theologian. He was a pastor for many years. Um, he, he wrote a book where he talked about the, the research that was done at, at, at Duke in North Carolina and at Harvard Universities that examined the impact of what they call fake adornment. And there's lots of research about this, and it's fascinating. You should read it sometime. Um, here's a quick crash course. Um, so in one of these studies on fake adornment, um, a group of women was given expensive Chloe sunglasses to wear, um, fancy glasses, um, and they were real and they were expensive. And they gave all the women in the group, just for joining in the study, they gave them all a brand new pair of Chloe sunglasses and they were very high and very expensive. However, at random, they told half of the women, um, but these are fake. And the other half, they told them, yes, these are real. And they were all real, uh, but half of the women thought their sunglasses were fake. And what happened was... Um, even though they were signed at random, the knockoff group was more, uh, was, was more than twice as likely to both cheat and steal in subsequent studies than women who believed that they were wearing the real deal. Women who believed that they were wearing fake sunglasses cheated and stole and lied in the tests more often than the people who weren't. 
This is fascinating. Um, and in another study, people who thought that they were wearing fake sunglasses were more cynical in their attitudes toward other people, more judgmental, more, more likely to call people hypocrites, because usually what you are is what you project on other people. And so liars will yell that everyone else is lying. And people who are hypocrites will call everyone else hypocrites. Um, the soul wants to be whole. And apparently fake sunglasses are really bad for your soul. <laughs> That's why televangelists wear real Yeezys. Okay, just joking. <laughs> Let's not. Um, now, we fake it in order to bolster our ego. This is what we do. This is why we fake it. Um, but the result is that we feel like phonies and we become more deceptive and cynical with other people. So uh, it uh, Orberg writes, our, our soul is so exquisitely sensitive, um, so, so exquisitely sensitive is the need of the soul to be whole, to be one thing, to be, to be focused, to be one thing, all of the time. Um, Oscar Wilde writes about this. He had his own struggles where he came to realize one day, like, the way that he started out is not the way that he is now. And the way that he saw that things should be is not how he had ordered his life in the future. Like, that it, as he had grown older, here's where he ended up. And he writes about, like, awakening to this concept in his life of look, examining his own life and saying, like, how did I get here? Here's what he says uh, in his book, uh, De Profundis. He says, um, I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And that, therefore, what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud on the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself, and I was no longer the captain of my soul. And I did not know it. I, I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended... Uh, I ended in horrible disgrace. He got so far down the road that he had forgotten that, that each day, each decision that you make, each thing that you do individually um, is sort of an adjustment of the compass needle of the trajectory of the path of your life. And if you make the wrong decisions, if you're not being honest and whole, and centered on the things of Jesus, you can easily end up in a situation where you are projecting and managing yourself rather than being the captain of your own soul and guiding this thing, okay? It is very dangerous. Um, the main problem with the Pharisees is that they, is they have become hypocrites for so long that they didn't even realize that they were hypocrites anymore. Um, here's how it plays out. Uh, we, go to the, we go to verse 13. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who uh, enter who are trying to. So let's get our, um, our terms and ideas right for a second. Um, in the first century, in Judaism, to open the door of the kingdom of heaven uh, meant to bring somebody in. That's what it meant. Um, it's not talking about disembodied soul in the clouds and giant pearly gates and you're standing there and Peter's there opening gates and shutting gates for you to enter into cloudy heaven. Um, it's literally talking about the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven, what is a kingdom? Let's define this. Uh, a kingdom has really three ingredients. There's a king, obviously. Can't have a kingdom without a king. There is land because the king has to rule over some land and then there is a people, the citizens of that kingdom. Um, the Jewish people we're the kingdom of heaven. That is what 
they viewed themselves as. They were God's people. Yahweh was their king. Uh, Israel was their land. Jerusalem was their city capital. Um, And the Jewish people themselves were the citizens of the kingdom. There were Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish. They wanted to convert. When this happened, it meant that someone had to open the door of the kingdom to them, okay? Um, Now, the main work of Jesus' ministry itself, when he was in this world walking and ministering, um, was opening the doors of the kingdom for people. Uh, This is what he did. When you see him walking to Jerusalem, there are blind, there are the, the lame, and there are beggars and crippled people all along the road because they weren't allowed to enter into the city of Jerusalem because 1,600 years earlier, King David had made a decree that none of them will be here, that they're unclean, they need to be outside the city walls. Jesus is entering into the city the day before this, before he does this, and he tells all these people, follow me into the city. And he brings them in, and the, and the next verse you see him in the center of the temple, healing the blind, the sick, and the lame, unheard of. This is him opening the kingdom of heaven for the people to enter in and be one of God's people, to enter into the kingdom, okay? In Christian theology, we are the kingdom of heaven, okay? We are a continuation of what Jesus was doing. Jesus not only did this for the blind and the, and, and the lame and the beggars, he, he, uh, he, people who were unclean, he would just look at them and say, you're clean, welcome back. He would heal people who were sick and couldn't enter into the fellowship. He would say, enter back into the fellowship of the people. Go be declared clean by the priest. He would, he would go to cities where um, Romans had sort of outposts, and there were these Roman centurions who, by them being there, made the whole city unclean, by the way, in like Capernaum. If there's like a Roman centurion, which there was, the whole city was unclean by him being there. Yet he would go to this Roman centurion and befriend him and even go into his house and heal his son. His house, full of of idols, okay? Jesus, his whole deal was, I'm opening the kingdom of heaven for you. And, and at the end of the book of Matthew, you're going to see this passage right here. Go and make disciples of all nations, okay? Emphasis is on the all in this passage because they always believed that, no, they, the Jewish people, were the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you're going to make disciples of every nation. When Paul says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, He's making that statement against the exclusivity of the Jewish people. No, Jewish people who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No, no, no. Everyone. All are welcome. No matter who they are, where they're from. Everyone's welcome. Okay? This is the work of Jesus. It's what Elijah said he was going to do. It's what Elijah said he was going to do. Jesus does it. Okay? This is the whole idea. What is happening in the New Testament, this is what's happening. God's people are becoming everyone. And all are welcome to follow Christ, not just the Jewish people. So when you see this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, this is what is happening. This is what Jesus was doing. He was opening the door for people. But every time Jesus opened the door, the Pharisees were there to say, no, those people are not allowed in here. In fact, you and your disciples are not allowed in here. The criticisms of the Pharisees were constant. They that considered themselves the gatekeepers of God's people, of the kingdom of heaven, and they wouldn't let people in who didn't follow their stringent, like, 
detailed plans. And so every time you see Jesus interacting with them, you see them saying, you eat with the wrong people, you don't keep the Sabbath right, you don't wash your hands correctly, and your view of women is too liberal because you don't think that we should be able to throw them out when we're finished with them and just divorce them. Like, this is how the Pharisees talk to people, okay? And Jesus is like, yeah, I mean, you're right about all that. I'm willing to let you into the kingdom of heaven. You know, like, um, it's, they were sorely mistaken. Every time Jesus opens the kingdom of heaven for somebody, They'd slam it shut and say, first off, hold on, there's stuff that needs to happen first, okay? And they would make um, all these rules for these converts. Um, And so Jesus, in the next verse, says this. uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much of a child of hell as you are. So he's getting a little harsher, a little more brutal. Um, So, real quick, there were... um, Oh, by the way, I, I, didn't, I didn't finish my grand idea there. We are the, the kingdom of heaven. That is us, by the way. Um, our king is Jesus. Um, the land is the whole world now. The temple, veil was rent. The whole symbolism of that is, you can look inside. God's not there. God, God's, the home is his people now. And everyone is welcome. That is the whole idea of the church. That is what a church was always supposed to be. No, everyone's welcome to come to, come to Christ. Everyone. Um, that is what we were supposed to be. Uh, so we go a little farther. Um, so you travel land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much, twice as much a child of hell as you are. Um, so there were two types of converts in the first century. You kind of need to know about this because as you read the Bible, you're going to see these terms, and you're going to be like, what is this? And now you'll know who these people are. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Um, the first kind of convert was, was very simple. It was called the God-fearers, and you will see them um, in plenty of passages in the Scriptures. Um, in the book of Acts, they come heavily into play when Paul goes into Thessalonica. So the God-fearers, um, these accepted the concept of monotheism. So they're like, okay, one God, Yahweh. We can accept that. Um, and they accepted Jewish moral law. We'll live by the law. They didn't do, take part in the three markers which justified the Jewish people, uh, which is, there's three things. Uh, there was um, the keeping the kosher laws, um, I don't want to pull Rick Perry here where I forget the third thing, right? Um, there was keeping the kosher law. Uh, there was um, uh, keeping the Sabbath. And there was circumcision. And these guys, the God-fearers, um, you would see them outside of the temple. It's sort of like, let me put it in a picture like this in the modern day. It's kind of a stark picture. It's, it's kind of a, a, a brutal picture if you think about it. It's like us in here worshiping. We would be the Jewish people. And then you would see around the building, surrounding the building, the God-fearers out there who didn't take the three special things of the law, the three markers, and you would hear them singing along with us. And you would hear them like at the windows, like listening to the sermon, and they would be like yelling, hallelujah, amen, stuff like that. Like you would hear them all out there, but they weren't allowed in. This offends Jesus, okay? These are the God-fearers. Um, and... Um, the Pharisees were always out trying to make, turn Gentiles into God-fearers, okay? They were, like, really close. By the way, when Paul goes into Thessalonica in Acts, uh, Acts uh, did I write this down? I think I'm, I'm just going to say Acts 17. Um, he, um, he finds all the God-fearers there, and he tells them about Christ. He says, oh, you're more than welcome to be fully, fully welcomed into the community. And they come in droves. They are, like, so hungry for Jesus, 
like so hungry to be connected to God. And it's amazing. Um, so the second type of convert that we see is the proselytes. It comes from the Greek word proselytes, and, and it simply it means um, it's, it's somebody who was a full convert. They did everything. Um, they did all ceremonial laws of circumcision. They took part in all of it. Okay, they went all the way. Um, and they were welcomed in, and some of them even became Pharisees. Okay, so the big goal of the, Samar- of the Pharisees was to turn God- Gentiles into God-fearers and God-fearers into proselytes, okay? Um, and then there were proselytes who would go out to try to convince Gentiles. They were called Judaizers, okay? So like, there's all these little terms. You can write them down when you see them or just email me like, hey, I saw this term. What is this? And I'll remind you. Um, so here's the thing. When the Pharisees would make converts, they would become like full zealots, okay? I always say there's nothing more dangerous than like a first-year Bible student because they're... They get up on, like, after the first week of classes, they get up and they look around and they're like, oh my goodness, everyone's a heretic except for me. <laughs> like, and then, like, and, and the less school you have, the more heretical everyone, everyone seems to be around you. Um, there's, this, <laughs> there's this thing, um, um, Dunning, the Dunning Kruger effect, right? You're familiar with this. Uh, there's the Dunning Kruger effect, and then, there, and then there's this. Um, this uh, imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome is something that people who know a lot about a subject, who know an awful lot about a subject, they tend to have this thing called imposter syndrome where they feel like they don't know a lot about the subject, but they literally know a whole lot, maybe everything about the subject, but they feel inadequate, right? That's on one side. And on the other side, there's the Dunning-Kruger effect where somebody knows very, very little about a topic but thinks they have all the information and everyone else is sheeple and they need to do their research, that word has lost all of its meaning today. It's Google. That's all it is. It's Google. Um, now, um, so they would make these converts, and these converts would be worse than, than the Pharisees because when you're a leader, what you do in moderation, your followers do in excess. So if, and remember that, by the way, that is, that is absolutely true. Um, so if the Pharisees were hateful, their followers were terrible, they were, and he, Jesus says, that, that's why Jesus says, you've made them twice as much the child of hell as you are. It's terrible, okay? Now, um, there's this, by the way, all of this is a constant danger in the modern church. There is a pendulum that happens. Uh, people who come out of fundamentalism, like full-on fundamentalism, um, when they begin to deconstruct, that pendulum starts swinging. It doesn't stop in the middle somewhere, never. It goes all the way to the other end, where they become full-blown, as they call them, like liberals or, or atheists. Like, they go, it goes fully the other way. Also, uh, it works the same going the other direction. When somebody comes out of, um, not when they were raised, like, uh, when they were raised atheists or whatever, and, and they find sort of religion, whatever it is, they tend to go all the way. Like, one day, they'll walk in wearing, like, a yarmulke. And you're like, whoa, you, whoa. Um, and, and they'll just go the other way, all the way. I literally, I literally, I just remembered this. I had a guy in my dorm at college who found out he was like one-third Jewish, literally went out and went like full Hasidic, bought everything, was carrying a suitcase, like bought the jacket and the tassels and the hat. And the day before, he was wearing Birkenstocks and a hoodie. Like, I was like, what happened? And so like this whole thing, like it happens. Because you, you suddenly see, like, I can be part of something, okay? Uh, it takes a Stay with people when that happens, by the way. Stay with them. They're leaving out. It's okay. Like, everyone's on a journey. Don't, 
don't push away. Like, go with them. Like, walk with them. Spend time. Like, listen. Speak. Um, this is how people adjust and change. It's part of the process, and it's okay. It really is okay. Um, yeah, they went that way. They're going to they're gonna swing back, and they may end up back over here where you don't like, and they may go back over here. It's okay. This is how life is. This is life. Faith is a journey. Um, and I actually want to spend, spend a few minutes this morning talking about this, the idea of conversion, how this happens. Conversion... Um, evangelization, conversion, these kind of things have a really bad rap today um, because people, people believe it to be manipulative. And oftentimes it is. I'll give it that. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, people tend to believe that this kind of stuff is, is more manipulative uh, than it means to be. Um, a lot of the generation today have a deeply flawed view of, of trying to convert people. And so I want to talk about that for a minute. There's a guy um, with an awesome name, Dr. Louis Rambo. So Dr. Rambo... Um, <laughs> He wrote a book called Understanding Religious Conversion, um, and he put together in this book uh, over a century of scholarship on conversion, not just Christianity, conversion in general to religions, from religion to religion. Um, And it wasn't centered on any specific religion, but religion in general. And before his book, it was basically believed, sort of like it is now, because these things, again, go in pendulums and waves and swings, Um, it was believed that conversion was mainly a manipulative act that was done by the part of the person trying to convert somebody, that the other person was just simply manipulated. Um, and his findings were just the opposite, um, that there is a path that person, a person who is converted takes, and they are majority, they are the ones, they're the ones, uh, majorly active taking part in their own conversion. And, and so he has this whole thing he writes out, um, in his books, um, where he calls them seekers. And he performs all kinds of studies in which theology is kept neutral. For, uh, and he found several things. So I want to work my way through these. First off, um, there is this context that everyone lives in. You have a context. I have a context. We have a culture. Um, you have a microculture, a subculture that you are a part of that I don't know anything about. I have a subculture that you don't know anything about. Like, we are all in these little subcultures. Um, and by and large, people are rarely converted by outsiders to your culture. They're just not. Um, it's not effective to stand on a street, cor- street corner and yell at people. It's, just, it's literally like the reverse of effective. It does the opposite. I have seen a woman from Watermark. I was in Ebor one night, and I saw a woman from Watermark walking down the street. And, and she didn't know I was there. I hadn't said hi yet because she's way over there walking that way. And then there's the old street preacher over here holding a big sign with all kinds of just crazy stuff on it. And, he's, and he literally called her a whore. I don't know what you're thinking you're going to accomplish by any of this. Um... Nothing is what actually you're going to accomplish. People are not converted by a person very separated from them. People are, they tend to change because people in their own contexts are present with them. That means they know them and they're listening to them. They understand their journey, part of what they've gone through, um, and they listen. Not only do they listen, but they hear everything that the person is saying. It is, it's, it's built in relationship, okay? Um, Outsiders just know, if you're on the outside, it's, it's hard to speak into the life of someone you, whose life you have taken no part in, just so you know. Um, it may actually work against you. Um, be in people's lives. Be contextual. Um, be incarnational, like Jesus was. Enter into their world. Um, so, um, there's no such thing, what he found was there's no such thing as a conversion without a crisis. And so I'm going to alliterate this whole thing. So for you Baptists, this will be helpful. It'll be like, it'll help you, okay? Um, there's no contact, uh, there's no conversion from a context without crisis. 
Um, and and here's, what, here's what he means by this. Um, something that stirs the heart for change, something that you see or read or experience or you awaken to. You go through something, you read something you can't unread, you hear something you can't unhear. Um, you suddenly meet somebody you've never, unlike anyone you've ever met, and they change your mind by being in their presence. They, it's a journey. There is this thing that happens that shifts you. And when this happens, you enter into a crisis. And nobody wants to dwell in a crisis. It's too painful. Um, I remember like 12, 13 years ago, I went through a huge deconstruction of, of my worldview and Christianity and all of that. Um, it's very confusing and complicated and difficult as you are navigating these things. And you kind of end up a bit of a hoarder. And you have all these kind of theologically, like all these things which don't go together. There's no order in the house. They're just all there. You don't know what to throw out and what to keep. It's very confusing. And a lot of people just throw the whole thing out. Happens a lot, constantly. Um, And so a crisis will send you on a journey. Um, Not just a journey. um, It'll send you you on a quest. And to keep alliteration, a quest. (laughs) It will send you on a quest. Now, nobody wants to dwell in a crisis, so you go on a quest. Um, Okay, something you need to know. Revivalists and evangelists are masters of precipitating crisis. That's how they do it. Um, If I can convince you in 20 minutes that God hates you, that you've been thrown out, that you're going to be destroyed you're going to suffer. Not only that, your children, your spouse, and everyone you ever know, that that is happening to you if you don't pray this prayer. I have just taken you from comfort and context into a crisis, and I'm offering you everything you need to fix it. They are masters of manipulation. This is how this happens. Um, they stoke fear in order to force conversion. Okay? It's pretty toxic, and it's not biblical. Um, early Christianity, not in the scriptures and not in early Christianity. Um, early Christian preaching does not seek foremost to precipitate a crisis. It, in fact, does just the opposite. It's an answer to crisis that already exists. It's not hard to practice biblical sort of evangelization, if you will. Okay? It's, it's not complicated. It's like, obviously things are broken. Things are not right. You know this. I know this. I didn't cause you to awaken to this. You've known this. Um, Our argument is they have the wrong king. And their earthly kings that they are electing every year or that they are following or their gurus, like their kings cannot fix what their own people broke. If we broke it, we can't fix it. We need a new king. And then we tell the story of Christ. And the story is powerful. It's just simply affirming, like, yes, things are broken. I follow Jesus. Because I no longer trust this. It doesn't work. Um, And so early Christian preaching does not seek to precipitate a crisis. There is no one standing up and saying, here's your situation And then painting this terrible, terrible, terrible picture for you and saying, now pray the sinner's prayer. In fact, um, I have people ask me sometimes, why don't you give an invitation, people to come forward? Um, Do you know where the invitation started? It started during the abolitionist movement 
um, when um, Christians who were not doing this manipulative kind of preaching were saying, are you a follower of Christ? Are you new? Whenever people said, I'm in, this makes sense, this meets my needs, this is what I need, um, he would say, well, then you're in. The door's open to you. Why don't you come forward and sign here to take part in the abolitionist movement? It was coming forward to take part in the work that the presence of God does in this world, setting people free. Like, that's where the invitation started. At some point, churches separated from social work and actually pushed back and said social work is wrong, okay? And have, have ruined the general idea of Christianity and, and, and its place in the world. Um, so, oh, and I flipped my notes back. Okay, so after this, after you have this crisis, what happens is um, you go on a quest, and what typically happens is you have an encounter. It's not hard to alliterate things. An encounter, right? An encounter comes through what's called an advocate. Okay, advocates, again, come out of your context. It's usually your parents. They know you. They can speak the most truth into your life. Secondly, it, it, it's siblings. They can hear. They know you. They know where you've been through, and you, you will listen to them, and you will trust them. Um, uh, thirdly, surprisingly, it's youth pastors, and then fourth is pastors. Uh, sorry. Um, media is fifth. Books, videos, songs, paintings, okay? The amount of people who have come to Jesus from seeing and pondering an ancient painting on the side of a church wall and have sat there and contemplated it. Completely illiterate people who just know that, they, that God has likened themselves to him, that Jesus was oppressed like them, beaten down, and they're distraught, not listened to, but they're full of love and they want goodness. And then they look upon the cross and they see Jesus and they connect with it and they come to Christ. And they become deep, intense followers of Jesus. And the only scripture that they have is the word of God, uh, the spirit of God within them, speaking the word of God to them, and the paintings on the sides of the, of the church walls and on the stained glass windows. And they build a faith from that. It is possible. People have done it since the beginning of time. Um, so an encounter... Uh, this, is, this is the next step. This is what happens. Um, and here's the thing. The further we are from the church, so typically the encounter happens through the church. Um, this is God's instrument of sort of bringing redemption to the world uh, uh, in these days. Um, but the farther you get from the church, what you'll actually see is there are actually mystical experiences that people have when they come to Christ. The amount of, Scott McKnight writes about this, um, and, and, um, and Dr. Rambo <laughs> writes about this. Um, he says the amount of the amount of like of of he writes about the, the amount of Jews and and Jews and Muslims who had had experiences mystical experiences with Jesus and then entered into following Jesus in that way and the way to talk about it is there's these mystical experiences that happen the farther you get from the church God is speaking to people He's calling them they are entering into crisis He is offering Himself there as the encounter um, and after that. There's sort of this, oh, by the way, there's a thing that churches do that Christians tend to do. It's, uh, and parachurch organizations do. It's called encapsulation. Um, it's not one of my C's, but encapsulation. Um, encapsulation is when you sort of, you pull somebody out of their context and you get them in another context um, where they are free of all distraction and then you work with them to convert them, okay? Like summer camps can do this. Um, churches technically are a form of encapsulation where we gather together and it's just us and we talk about these things of Jesus. Um, 
the thing we must remember is that any kind of encapsulating thing, you have to leave, you, you have to create space for people to leave. Like, people have to be safe. People have to be free to go. No manipulation. No talking. We are here to meet your needs. Okay, that, that's all we want. To help you understand what we have found. Okay? If it connects with you, it's awesome. If it doesn't, I understand. Keep searching. Maybe you'll be back. Um, and in fact, after the encounter, one of two things happens. The first thing that can happen is, is there is the walk away. Okay? It's fine. It's the journey. It's part of the journey. Do not be afraid. I trust God for people. I trust God with people. Um, and after that, um, other than the walk away, there is this idea of the commitment, the final C, commitment, um, where you enter into this ritual and you build this new culture in your life and it becomes centered in these other things. Now, um, there's two ways that this can happen and this to me is fascinating and this is helpful for people who are like, like you parents who are asking questions about what about my children? I mean, they're coming of age and how do, how do I know what they think about all this, about following Jesus? How do I know if my children are in or out um, what, it, what, what am I capable of knowing about this? Um, so there's two ways that this happens, for those of you pondering these ideas, and I know some of you are. Um, um, so sometimes there's a sudden act. Sometimes conversion is a sudden act. Sudden, like Paul, for instance. He's on a horse traveling to the city of Damascus. He spent the last decade literally rounding up Christians, families, men, women, and children and he was arresting them and throwing them to the lions or the wolves in the arenas or just slaughtering them right there with swords or stoning them. Paul has been doing this for 10 years and he's on a horse on the way to Damascus and he has a mystical experience and Jesus shows up and says, stop persecuting my people. And he awakens and becomes a follower of Jesus and three months later he's, he's proclaiming the gospel as one of the people that he was just killing. Okay, um, This happened. So, sometimes it is suddenly. Other times, though, it's not. Growing up, I was kind of always taught, especially by televangelist preachers who said, look, if you can't name the spot and the time and the place where you became a, a, a Christian, then you're not one. That's just somebody who in that moment wants you to make that decision then so they can say, another person under my preaching came to Christ. Okay? Manipulative. It's BS. There, is, there, there are times when, even in scriptures, it is a progressive journey and an unveiling, a nodding of the soul to respond. Um, for instance, Peter gradually came to Jesus. If you ask, I mean, um, doing a lot of McKnight. McKnight was here a couple weeks ago, and now I'm quoting a lot of McKnight. Complete coincidence. Who knows? Um, so in his, he wrote a book on baptism recently where he talks about this. He's like, when was Peter converted? Um, was it when Andrew walked up to him and said, hey, I found the Messiah. Was he converted then? Or was it in Luke 5 when Peter was told by Jesus to like, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And he does. And he pulls up a whole bunch of fish. And he's like, oh, it's Jesus. It's, yeah. And he freaks out and worships Jesus. Was it then? Or was it in Matthew 16 when he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah? It's a pretty big deal. Uh, was it in John 21 after he denied Jesus and then he repents and says, I, didn't, I know who you are and I'm sorry. Or Acts 2 when he receives the Holy Spirit. I mean, some people, yep, that's it. Um, other people, you know, Acts 10 through 11 when Peter actually realizes that the gospel is for everyone and now he has suddenly understood the actual gospel. Okay, when was Peter converted? The answer is yes. 
It just, it's this thing. It's this progressive, like Peter was illuminated over and over, and each time he responded with this, with this fresh, like, nod in. Yes. Once again. Yes. Um, each time his life was changed again and again. Conversion oftentimes is a lifelong process. That's how it has been for me. Building, tearing down, building, tearing down, building, tearing down. Um, God moving me deep inside my soul and this sort of awakening to like, yeah, once again, God has, has shown himself through this, this small crisis, this huge crisis, this small crisis, this small crisis, this huge crisis. And it's just been like this, this turn and this gentle nod of the soul. Like, yeah, yeah, this is the path. This is the way. And it comes together piece by piece. Um, it's the journey and, and surrendering and backing up and surrendering again. I believe that God is using your life to prepare you to respond to the next thing all the time. Just like Peter. God is constantly using the events in your life. Paul writes about this. Using the events in your life to just prick your soul a little bit to say, okay, yeah, and a little farther, a little farther, and a little farther. And you are becoming exactly what God has for you to become. The work of Jesus is fully focused, um, and the work of the church is fully focused on revealing the kingdom of heaven to you and inviting you to take part in it for your change and for your growth. The whole goal of this is to keep our eyes on the center thing, the kingdom of heaven. When we get our eyes off of that, we begin to take part in the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about. When our faith gets separated from the yearning of our soul to be wholly committed to one thing, you cannot serve two masters, God or money, God's kingdom or earthly kingdoms. There is one king, there is one kingdom. There is one people of God. And your soul is calling out to you to follow that. And when you pull it in two different directions, you will find unhealth in the depths of who you are. And it will manifest itself in terrible ways. We can see that looking at evangelicalism all around us. Uh, Why don't we take communion to remind ourselves of who it is that we we are and that we follow. Our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, We do this every single week. It's the great reminder. It's the great gift. Um, It's the good gift. It is uh, finding Christ in the common. It is an exercise, a spiritual exercise that every single day as as we go throughout our life, we will remember that when we stood at the table of Jesus and we took the bread, which is the body of Christ, and we dipped it in the wine, which represents the blood of Christ, and we ate it and we took it down inside of us, that we saw Christ in that and we found healing and we were affirming the nod in our souls like, yes, this is the path. And as we go out these doors and we go through our day, we will remember that and we will begin to see Christ in the common and be reminded the kingdom of heaven is for them, it's for them, it's for them, it's for them, it's for them. There's nobody that it's not for. And so as we take communion, uh, we'll take some time and we will um, sort of uh, quiet our souls and listen to God, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us now into wholeness, into goodness, into peace. In your name, amen.